I'm thinking today. We've been making our way through the book of Acts now for almost a year, and we're almost done. This is the second last message. The entire last section of the book of Acts, almost a third of the book, uh, could be called, should be called, in fact, often is called, the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, It's the exploits of a man who was committed wholeheartedly to to the work of God, and yet that commitment saw him uh, often mobbed and at the center of riots. It saw him beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked multiple times. And and boy, the the storms of life, both literal and figurative, uh, they just kept coming again and again and again. And we're going to look at one of those episodes today in chapter 27 about, about him caught in a storm. If you were here last week, you'll know that when we last saw Paul, he was standing trial for his life. He was in front of a Roman governor, a man named Festus, and a Judean king, Herod Agrippa. And he was presenting his case. And in his own ingenious, winsome way, rather than just mounting a defense, he was actually mounting this consistent, persuasive argument for what it is that he believed. Well, the outcome of the trial, if you're wondering, is that the whole thing gets appealed to Rome. It's now going to the Supreme Court. And so we catch Paul now in chains, being taken by boat to Rome to stand trial in the highest court of the land. We're going to pick up that story in Romans chapter 27. So let me invite you to open or, or turn on your Bibles. In chapter 27, we're going to look at a section beginning... In verse 13, they're making their way by boat on the way to Rome. And it says in verse 13, uh, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. They're going to make some time now. So they weighed anchor and they sailed along the shore of Crete. But before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a nor'easter swept down from the island and the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. And so we, remember that little preposition, we gave way to it, and we were driven along. And as we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. They passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor And they let the ship be driven along. And we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And then on the third day, they threw all the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. I'm going to pause there and then we'll, we'll move on. But I don't know that you've ever felt like you've been trapped in a stage of life like that, where it's relentless. It just never ends. I mean, Paul here is in the middle of, of a real storm. But we use that language to describe figuratively all of the sufferings and the trials and, and the distress and, and just the long list of things that batter us in life. And if you've ever been part of a season that just feels relentless, it's never going to end. And you're about to give up hope. Before we read on, I, I want to commit this time to prayer because I think that there is something really of critical importance here. 
that can give us the tools that God intends us to have to navigate some of those storm times in life. I want you to notice particularly, and you have these in your notes in the outline in the back, about one of the great paradoxes of that kind of episode in life, that storm and distress and suffering. We're going to look at the really the difficult question of purpose. Why is it happening? Why does God allow it? What could he be doing in this? And then we will ask, along with Paul, for our own lives, how can we cultivate the healing presence of God when everything else in life looks like it is still spiraling out of control? And the the hope is that if we figure out how Paul did it, how God did it through him, that there'll be a lesson for us about how we can do it as well. That's where we're headed. Let's pray together before we begin. God, for for some of us here this morning, this, this isn't just a philosophical exercise. Life has battered us, and we're weary. And for some, we're on the brink of giving up hope. We're frustrated. We don't know why. We don't see a way out. We don't see a way through. God, we need to see you. We need to see you in the midst of it. We need to see you at, at the other end of it. We, we need to find not just answers, but also strength and peace. So God, through your spirit, would you work in our lives, work through the gift of your word, as we understand in this place the paradox and the purpose and your presence in the storm. We, we pray that there will be something personal, something real, something revitalizing and life-altering for each of us in this word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, paradox. But why paradox when it, when it comes to storms? Well, let me show you what the paradox is here. Have a look. We're in chapter 27 of the book of Acts. Have a look at verse 22, where Paul says, But now I urge you, keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. What an encouraging word. Everybody's terrified. Paul says, last night an angel of God visited me and he told me that everyone can be encouraged because not one of you will be lost. We're going to lose the ship, mind you, but, but nobody is going to die. Be, be courageous. So that's one half of the paradox. But let me show you something else. Have a look down in verses 30 and 31. We're told at one point the sailors were so terrified that they tried to abandon ship. You remember that the ship was coming apart, literally. And they lashed the lifeboat to the top of the deck. And then they put ropes all the way around the boat just to try and bind it together. Well, off in one side of the boat, kind of clandestinely, Paul catches the sailors cutting the ropes and trying to free the lifeboat. And they're about to take off. What does he do? He goes to the centurion, to the leader of the soldiers who are being transported along with him on this craft and says to them, unless these men stay with the ship, we're going to die. We cannot be saved. And so the soldiers, they go and they cut the ropes and then they throw the lifeboat away. Now the sailors have no choice. They're staying whether they want to or not. What Paul is trying to say is, listen, I'm a prisoner, your soldiers None of us know how to operate this boat. And if the sailors leave, we're done. They can't leave or we'll die. That's what he says quite literally there in the text. Unless those sailors stay, we cannot be saved. There's the paradox, right? I mean, on the one hand, didn't Paul just say, 
God has spoken. It's absolutely certain. No one is going to die. He had no doubt about it. This was a secure word from God. He offers it to his shipmates as a word of assurance. And yet, you find him in the middle of this situation where it looks like this all depends on the on the presence and the skill of sailors who they cannot afford to lose. Unless these guys stay to operate and steer the boat, we cannot be saved. There's the problem. And the reason it's a problem is because, for the most part, we are either-or people, right? Either God is totally in control, in which case it doesn't really matter what the people did. If they were going to live, they're going to live. Why not just say, hey, you're all going to live. I don't care if you go. Go snorkeling. It just doesn't matter. We're going to be fine. God has promised it. In our minds, if God is totally in charge, then what we do doesn't matter. Our choices don't matter. Either that or we believe that our lives are the sum total of our choices, that we control our own destiny, that it's us through our actions, our behavior, and our decisions that shape everything in life. We are either or people. But Paul, and by the way, not just Paul, most of the Bible, in fact, is a both-and view of the world. Paul's assuming that every single thing that happens, the great things, the terrible things, they all fall within the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all of it, 100%. And yet Paul is still willing to say our choices matter, They have consequences, we are free, and we are responsible for the lives that we lead. Divine sovereignty, human freedom. The two of them are held together. It's not either or, it's both and. It's coherent, it's it's one whole thing. It's, I was trying to remember the word in the first service, I couldn't quite get it. it, It's it's not a zero-sum world, right? We we live with that idea that that in a in a zero sum world it's either 100% god or 100% us or maybe it's 50-50 or 80-20 we give god the benefit of the doubt and paul says no it's 100-100 god is 100% sovereign in charge and you are 100% responsible for what you do so let's work out what that means Let's take an example. Let's go way back to the early pages of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, and let's look at the life of a man named Jacob. Jacob, if you remember his backstory, his life is a series of really bad choices. He lies to his father. He gets his brother angry. He flees for his life. It's a mess. He never sees his mother again. His life is screwed up completely. And yet, because of his mistakes, because of his poor choices, because he was forced to leave, He begins in a whole new land, a whole new line of people, a whole new tribe, a clan. And out of that line of people, as you track through the descendants, one name pops out like the brightest star in a constellation. From the line of Jacob comes Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, what Jacob did was wrong. It it, it had consequences, and yet it was also part of God's plan. It was the vehicle through which the Messiah comes to earth. The Messiah is not plan B. It was always plan A. So, okay, if if this was always the plan, then what Jacob did was all right. He shouldn't be at fault. No, no, he screwed up his life. He shouldn't have done it, but he did. And yet God still used it. That's, that's the paradox. 
Let me show you another place where we see it. Still in, in the scriptures, but this time in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. We were here almost a year ago when we began the series. Acts 2, the very first sermon, Peter looks at the people of Jerusalem and he says to them, Acts 2, verse 23, Jesus was handed over by you, or handed over to you, by God's deliberate plan, and with his foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Do you hear that? Jesus' death on the cross, determined by God, named and known by God, absolutely certain this was going to happen. And if it was God's deliberate plan, then those who are complicit in his death, how could they be held responsible? And yet they are. They're wicked people. You say, but they were used by God. Yes, they were. But that doesn't make their decisions or their actions excusable. Remember, Jesus from the cross himself, among the very last thing that he says, turns to his executioners, to the soldiers uh, presiding over his death, and says to them, Father, Forgive them for what they do. You don't need to forgive someone unless they are culpable. And they were. They were guilty. Their actions were not excusable. God's sovereignty, our choices. It's not 50-50. It's both and. 100-100. And it's absolutely critical. When storms come, when troubles come and difficulties, that you know this paradox. Yes, what we do matters. Yes, our choices have consequences. At the same time, God is still sovereign. It's not out of control. God knows what he's doing. You just you have to keep the two together. Now, I say that, and it's supposed to be a reassuring idea. And I admit that for most of us, it's probably not. Because what we really want to be assured of is that, is that we are really in control of our own lives. That if we make the right choices, that if we take care of our bodies, live healthy lives, cultivate good relationships, uh, attend church regularly, be just good stock, then everything is going to be great. That, that we'll have complete control of our lives. But we know that's not the way it is. We are not just the product of our choices. The world is fallen. And in a fallen world, rotten stuff just happens. In fact, if you were to push a little bit further, you don't just want to be the product of your choices. At least I hope not. I was thinking about my own life. At 21 years old, I was absolutely convinced that God had given me the woman with whom I would spend my life. Four years we'd been together. We were in love. We talked and talked about marriage. And then one day I found myself weeping away in my car at the end of a relationship that I was convinced in my own mind and through my own choices was the right one. Looking back through the lens of history 26 years later, I know that my life would have been so much the poorer if I'd chosen what I wanted at that time. In fact, looking back on my 21-year-old self, and this is going to sound a little bit crotchety, but probably two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the things that I would have chosen for myself at that age would have made a mess of my life. It just would have been absolutely wrong. You don't just want the life that you choose. So, I mean, here's the practical point. People either say, it's destined, so what I do doesn't matter, or they say, I'm totally free, and God is not really in control of anything. The most practical thing is to believe that God is sovereign and that our lives 
matter. Our choices matter. And this is what you see in Paul. He's a leader. He goes to the centurion. He says, do this, do that. Don't let this happen. He's not passive, but he's calm. He's not panicked, but I mean, Paul is poised in the situation. He's making good decisions. There's nothing more majestic in life than to believe, to know for certain that God is 100% in control, absolutely sovereign, and still know that you are free, that you make wise decisions, that you can live courageously and wisely with all the strength that you can muster to hold those two things together. I need, you need, to know both of those things because it is, it's both the most bracing and the most consoling thing you can imagine. It's bracing because it means we can't just be passive, but it's consoling because it means you cannot screw up your life in the end. But isn't that good news? It's still in God's hands. And I cannot mess up the plan he has for me. That's the paradox of the storms. God is in charge, and yet what I do matters. Let's move from paradox to the, boy, that thorny question of purpose. Why does God allow the storms? I mean, sometimes we think he sends them, but even if we don't think he sends them, he obviously allows them. I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? Why does God allow suffering and evil in the world? But I guess more importantly, why does he allow it to happen to me? I mean, why, why me? Um, don't you think I'm doing my very best? I'm trying to do the right thing. Why is this coming into my life? And I'm going to suggest that there is in any storm, in any suffering, a general purpose and a specific purpose. The general purpose is always for the good. And we're going to look at what that means, because it might not mean what you think. The general purpose is for good. The specific purpose is for godliness. Let's look at both. First of all, the general purpose for good. I'm going to talk to you about two verses, two examples in Scripture, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. The Old Testament one has a story behind it, so here's the story. Jacob has 12 sons, part of that lineage that we talked about. His favorite son is Joseph. He spoils Joseph. And as the children grow up, the family is a mess because favoritism always does that, right? Joseph is growing up spoiled and cruel and shallow, and and his brothers are growing up bitter and, and resentful and competitive, and they're angry at him. And finally, as the story goes on, the brothers catch Joseph in, in a very vulnerable, isolated, remote place. Nobody can see what they're doing. And there they hatch a plan, and they implement him to sell him into slavery. So they sell him to a traveling caravan, and he's taken into Egypt. And there he works hard. He tries to be the best servant that he can be, and it just doesn't matter. Everything goes wrong for him. He's falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. For Joseph, it's just one bad thing after another. And at one point, he's calling out to God from within this cistern, this, this well that's been turned into a prison. And it just doesn't feel like God is hearing or answering him at all. Bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. It's like that storm, that nor'easter that Paul's in. It goes on day in, day out. But if you know the story of Joseph, I hope you do. If you don't, what a great way to spend a sunny Sunday afternoon. Go read the story of Joseph. If you know the story, you know that from the dungeon, Joseph ascends to a position of trust and authority in Egypt. And when poverty strikes, now he's in charge. And as a person in charge, only because of the 
the hard, storm-filled road that he had traveled is he placed in a position to save his people, including his own family, from certain death through starvation. Joseph himself becomes a person of greatness. He escapes probably the, the terrible future that he probably would have inherited as a spoiled brat. If that stuff hadn't have happened in his life, the good things would never have happened. And so at the very end of the story, Joseph looks at his brothers, and here's the verse. Genesis 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, verse 20 says, You meant it for evil. God used it for good. There's that word, good. Paul says almost exactly the same thing. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things are working together for good. Look carefully at what that doesn't say. It doesn't say that all things are good. That'd be preposterous. It doesn't even say that every cloud has a silver lining. This isn't a Hallmark card. He says that God is at work even in the most terrible things. And from the vantage point of heaven, from the vantage point of eternity, God is still carefully working out his purposes in history. Even the things that are evil. And even using those things to accomplish exactly the opposite of what evil intended. He's working so that that even the most unimaginably catastrophic events in your life and in our world can still be salvaged and used for some incredibly good purpose. You meant it for evil. God is using it to bring out the opposite for his good purposes. That's God's purpose in every storm, in all storms. We may not be able to see it. Joseph got to the very end of his life before he was able to name it. But but it's always there. That's the Old Testament example. Guess who the New Testament example is? Of course. Think about Jesus himself. I mean, if you were there with him, that, that little band of followers, you must have thought, this is the greatest person in the world. This is the greatest person we've ever seen. Look, he's, he's healing sick people. He's raising dead people. He's giving sight to blind people. He's feeding hungry people. He did so many good things that scholars have said that, that poverty and, and, and suffering was virtually eliminated in Palestine during the three years in which he worked. But then you find yourself standing on top of a garbage heap outside the walls of Jerusalem and you're looking at him there hanging on the cross and saying, what good could possibly come of this? All the horrible things that were now happening to Jesus, all the anger of the world, all the corruption of the authorities, all the fury of Satan himself, all this being done against Jesus, what good could come of it? Well, you know the answer. That all the evil directed against him, what it accomplished was exactly the opposite of what it intended. What it accomplished was salvation, atonement, resurrection. All these things that were intended for evil. The tables got turned. This year, Easter Sunday follows on April Fool's Day. I love that. That's exactly what happened. Fooled you. It's not what you thought. It's God's good purposes being worked out in the most devastating of evil directed against Jesus. We've got a whole book about it. It's long. It's rich. It's worth reading. And at the end, the people who have spent their time there are able to say, I get it. I I see 
why God allowed those storms. I see it. But you know what it doesn't always answer? It doesn't always answer the question, why God allowed my storms? Why is God allowing this to happen to me? There's a book for that too. That's the good news. There's a book for that too. It's just not here. <laughs> it's it's in the heavenly library, or maybe it's gone digital by now, I don't know. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. All things work together for the good purposes ordained by God for those who are called according to him. That's the principle. When you're in the middle of the storm, you don't get to see the end of the book. And that's the hard part, right? The good purposes that God is going to extract. So because you don't always see that, I want to give you another little word here. I mentioned there's a general purpose and there's a specific purpose. There is a specific purpose. And it's always at least this. When suffering happens in your life, there is always the opportunity to grow in godliness. Here's what we mean. Have a look in verse 33 and 34 in Acts chapter 27. Paul's talking to those who are on board the ship with him and he says... Just before dawn, Paul was urging them to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense. You've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. And then comes this word. Not one of you will lose a single hair from their head. Some of you are looking and thinking, what, what happened to that promise, Lord? But no, here's, here's, here's Paul in full tilt encouragement mode. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. And what Luke is doing at that point, Luke wrote the book of Acts, remember? Is reminding them. By the way, remember that preposition, the we I asked you to remember? Luke's there in the boat. This is a first person account. He's right there. He's a witness. When he says, we did this, we were afraid. The author of the story is there in the boat. He saw it all happening. When he heard Paul say, not a hair from your head is going to perish. Cannot but think that in the back of his mind were the words that he'd written earlier in his other book, the book about Jesus himself, the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 21, where Jesus says, 21 verse 16, listen, there'll be times when you're betrayed by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, even friends. Some of you will be put to death. People are going to hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. The promise of Jesus. Stand firm and you will win life. There's a whole sermon just in that one verse. And I'm sorry we we can't do that one today. But what Jesus is saying is this. In the end, it's only in suffering that you come to possess your own soul. Think about this. If you live for your job, your job owns you. And if anything goes wrong in your job, you are toast. I mean, you're wrecked, you're vulnerable. Because it had possession of you. If you live for relationship and romance and those things go wrong, boy, you're just a, a heaping, weeping mess of trouble. If you base your life and your happiness and your meaning on looking good or having things or achievements, if there's anything more important to you than the presence of God in your own soul, you've lost possession of what's most important about you, of your own soul. 
Other things own that. They have title to your heart. And everything, if anything goes wrong with those things, you're devastated. Now, here's what storms do. When a storm comes, it overturns those things that have a hold on your life, that possess your soul. The job that you thought was everything that you were is taken away from you. The relationship that you thought would define you is gone. The health that you thought you would always have is slipping away. And because of the storm, you've got a choice. You can spend the rest of your life in self-pity, in bitterness, feeling like a failure, or you get to reinvest your soul where it matters in God himself. And you can say, it's in Jesus and in him alone that I'm going to place my life, my wealth, my trust, my soul. In other words, you can release your soul from the grasp of other things and you can give it right to God. And you see it in Paul. You see him in full possession of his own soul, absolutely in charge. He has poise. And by the way, this is his third shipwreck, so he also has experience. Here's the thing. People who haven't really suffered They don't really know themselves. Not yet. They don't really know their strengths and their weaknesses. They can't empathize or sympathize with people at the depth for which they were created. They're shallow. Patient endurance in the middle of the storm gives you possession of your own soul. When God gets put back in the middle, Isn't that really what holiness is? When a holy God is in the center of your life, holiness is the inevitable result. It's one of the things that that storms can give. I wish there were other ways that God gives it. Maybe there are, but that seems to be the one that works the best. So if there is a general purpose in the storms of life, it is that God is at work for good. But if there's a specific purpose, it is... To give us holiness. Just one last point and then we'll wrap it up. You know, of course, or maybe you don't. Maybe it's just a theory, but test it with me. I don't think suffering automatically makes anyone a better person. It's not automatic. You know people who've gone through a season of suffering and they came out self-pitying and bitter and they're never the same. They're not better because of it. But other people come out stronger. And there's that saying, that old one, said the same sun that melts, melts wax also hardens clay. You know that one? It's not in the Bible. Don't look for it there. But how, how is it that Paul is able to come through storm after star, storm and, and he's better off, not worse off? The last thing that I want to show you in the practice of Paul as God works through him is how he is able to hold on to and celebrate and practice the presence of God in the middle of the trial and the storm. Because many of us, I think, when bad things happen, you've had a financial reversal, you've had a relationship betrayal, you've had a situation come, and it's just, it's really hard. It's easy to think, God has given up on me. I'm abandoned. And then come all the other horrible thoughts. Maybe I'm being punished. Maybe he's just no good at his job. I mean, God, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's not here at all. Maybe he never was. What Paul is actually doing when he gives the prophecy, have a look again in verse 23. 
is he's holding on to the presence of God. He says in verse 23, last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. That's moving language, isn't it? The God to whom I belong. That's the language of intimacy. When I talk about my kids, my Nicole, my Joshua, that's they're mine. They're, they're not yours. You get to know them, but they're, they're mine. That's the language of intimacy. It's also the language of covenant. The Bible talks about covenant. That's the language. The Bible says that, that I will be with you. This is God speaking. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's, that's the intimate language of relationship. That's the language Paul uses here. He doesn't make the mistake that we make often when we're suffering of saying God's punishing me, which leads only to despair, or God doesn't care, which leads to even deeper despair. He's saying, no, he's with me, even here. Aboard a sinking ship, he's practicing God's presence, and he knows that the love of God in the midst of the storm can only make him stronger. Let me show you one last thing. Matthew chapter 12. Flip in your Bibles. Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. The Bible actually has a lot of of storm stories. Both the figurative ones and the literal ones. Probably one of the best known literal ones of of storms and seafaring adventures and big fish is the story of Jonah. So have a look at this little word from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 40. As Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. But a greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah is here. Jesus calling himself the ultimate Jonah. What does it mean? You remember the story of Jonah running away from God, running from God's will, tail between his legs, going off in the other direction. A storm comes. When Jonah sees the storm, when he's trapped in the middle of it, he knows he deserves it. And he knows he's endangering everybody else that's on the boat with him. So he says, throw me into the sea. Let the storm consume me and then you'll be saved. They do and he is. He's consumed and they're saved. What's Jesus saying? I'm the ultimate Jonah. What does he mean? There's a storm coming. There's a storm coming. All human beings have fallen short of the glory of God. We just don't love God the way we're designed to, and we don't love others the way we want to. There's a storm coming. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you can know that I took the storm into my own life. It fell on me. I am the true Jonah. I was consumed so that you can be saved. I was abandoned, and now you don't need to worry that you ever will be. And when you suffer, you can know that it's not punishment. It's just part of the brokenness of the world. God is with you. He brings you out on the other side. The question of suffering isn't just a philosophical one, though, is it? In the end, we could bandy about all these really fascinating arguments and, and deep and grounded theology, but, but suffering isn't primarily a philosophical question. It's a personal one. How are you going to get through it? Some of you are in the middle of it right now. How are you going to get through? You need somebody with you. 
can't do this thing alone. Only Christianity, and this is remarkable, of all the philosophical systems and worldviews and religions out there, only Christianity is honest about this. And only Christianity has right at the heart of its proclamation of truth this idea that God is with us in suffering. Even deeper, Christianity claims that God himself is suffering, has suffered. If you lost a child, so did God. If you betrayed, so was Jesus. Had people stab you in the back, experiencing pain in your body, facing poverty, facing death, so did Jesus. You're not alone in this. So probably the best way, probably the the only way, only way really to end a message on suffering is, is to go to the one who claims that you are never alone. And we're going to do that. We're going to spend some time together in prayer. I'll invite the worship team to come and join me on the stage. But I'll lead you a little bit. But I also want this to be a, a safe and a quiet place where you can talk to God about those things in your life that overwhelm you, that, that threaten to consume you that you have a hard time acknowledging. Just want you to give these things up and recognize that in the paradox that there is still the promise and the presence of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the assurance that comes from this text that even though the world, even, even the sufferings of this present age, even all those things that seems so evil, even though they threaten us, they won't overwhelm us. We will not be overcome. And we take you at your word and we celebrate the assurance of your promise that you can use them for your good purposes. Help us, Lord, to live, live lives of peace and assurance and boldness. These gifts that come from knowing that you are in control of all things, that you are sovereign, that you are good. And here is God as, as we offer up the deep things of our lives to you and pray for your presence, your promise, your power. Hear us as we pray. You are the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. Help us to be people who have that same kind of peace because of what we know and who we know. Because there is still power in being able to pray and live our lives in Jesus' name. So we do so. In Jesus' name. Amen.